I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as Disney catalog fans, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. And uh, we are not alone this week. We do have a special guest. Will our mystery guest enter and sign in, please? Hi, I'm Tasha, and I am thrilled to be here. Yay. Um. Yeah. Well. Well. We'll. We'll put this out there. We are talking about the Shape of Water this week. It is an R-rated movie, so we are going to have an R-rated conversation for this film. Uh, if you are one of our listeners that like to listen to it with listen to our podcast with your little ones, uh, you might not want to this week. Yeah. So, this uh, one's. This one's not for the kitties. Sorry, kitties. We'll see you back next week. Next week will be a kid-friendly episode. Yeah. I don't know if we've talked about any uh, Guillermo del Toro movies yet. We have mentioned we, him on on the show. Yeah, we we talked uh, we talked about uh, one of his production uh, ones before. Um, so yeah, I think the last time we talked about him was Book of Life. Yeah. So, but he didn't direct that one. Mm. But uh, Disney does own two of his directorial efforts through the Fox buyout because Fox Searchlight, uh, now just called Searchlight Pictures, uh, since the buyout, does own two of his directorial outings. One of them is The Shape of Water, and the other one is his most recent directorial outing, which is Nightmare Alley. Uh, but this one is probably his most successful critically, I guess you'd say, mm. because this was the one that got all the Oscars. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, probably the most successful critically. I'd say Nightmare Alley is pretty high up there critically, but it didn't get the Oscar, so yeah, I'd, I'd say up there. Well, it, I mean, it's the big one. We we're um we're still waiting for for that that award season to come around, though, aren't we? No, it was uh, last year. I think. Might have been the year before. I'm pretty sure uh, it was nominated, but I forget what one. Um, it was the punch in year. Oh, okay. Yeah, everyone forgot about everything that happened during the year except for that. But time has no meaning anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Much. I can I can I cannot uh, cannot keep up with it. It's kind of weird to me because I'm a huge Del Toro fan, totally in it, completely in And this is one of the ones in his, the circle of I travel in any way that gets talked about the least. Like, I'm very surprised by that. Even things like Mimic and uh, Kronos get kind of tossed around more. And I, I don't know if that's just kind of a 
prudes are more fangirly or fanboy than thou type thing, see how much I could talk about the obscure thing as opposed to the one that got the most attention. But it, it just seems odd to me that people don't discuss it as much as they discuss, say, Crimson Peak or some or the Hellboy stuff. You know, I'm gonna agree with that because I'm also a huge Del Toro fan, and this is one of the ones it took me a longer time to see. I mean, you know, I watched Mimic in theaters. I I mean, and that was before, I mean, that was one of his ones that was so early. It wasn't like, oh, this is a Del Toro film. It was just like, this is the movie that's coming out this week, so I'll go see it. Um, but you know, uh, Crimson Peak, I'll watch multiple times a year because it's probably my favorite one he's ever done. Um, you know, Hellboy, I I watch constantly. Um, but this one, it took me a while to, to watch because it just, it was like, well, you know, it it looks very creature from the black lagoon and i i'm into that but it was not one that immediately was like oh man i got to rush out and see that i saw it as soon as i could i had lived in a town at the time that this was not like a big big theater release it didn't get at the multiplex i had to go to the tiny the little art theater to see it so it was kind of a, a bit out of the way, but um, it even when it got like the Oscar buzz, it wasn't getting as promoted, I thought, as some of the other stuff in the areas. Like usually they would do the uh, re-release of stuff that had been uh, uh, kind of known or, or was getting Oscar buzz would get re-released to the bigger theaters. And I don't think it did, at least again in my my neck of the woods, which at the time was going to say. So it's just strange to me that it's just, even though it is his most critically acclaimed and the one that got him the Oscar, it doesn't seem to have gotten as much play. That is true. I don't think this one ever came to my local theater in my, my town as far as playing you know i definitely i never saw this one in the theater i i definitely saw it after it came out you know home media streaming uh for the first time um so that was absolutely uh a thing that did hurt it i think um because, you know, I mean, Tuesday, he, he lives in the Chicago area. So, I mean, it's, it's, we've talked about this before. Like, he, he just has access um, to everything. So, if he wanted to go see it, it would just be available to him. But um, it, it sounds like you and I are, are more, you know, in the, the rural um, yeah. thing. Um, but Tuesday, you didn't even see this movie until we were doing it for the the podcast did you yeah i i had heard of the movie but it it just was never i just never got around to it i mean i had nothing against it it just i never got around to it and um 
yeah, I finally watched it for this podcast. And uh, I mean, I'll go, we'll go through our thoughts about it in, in, in a minute. But uh, yeah. I Let mean, me what yeah. just just as a as a thing, what do you think it was that kept you from from seeing it specifically? I think it was of the era that I know that this was not connected to it, but it was that whole universal dark universe thing. <laughs> of we're going to remake all of the classic monster movies and we're really 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 going to try to be marvel but and make the universal monster movies our marvel universe because they had that mummy remake and there was that dracula remake and i know again i know it's not part of that universe but that i frankenstein it was one of those you know i'm i'm, I'm kind of Nah, I'm kind of stepping away from remakes of the classic monster movies. <laughs> oh, God bless the so it, it was a little too Creature from the Black Lagoon for you. Yeah. yeah and I was, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's what turned people off a little too much. Because it kind of was a, a little... A little bit for for me as well and the thing is is that i don't think it's an unfair cop because guillermo del toro did say specifically that this that was one of the major inspirations for the film i mean if he didn't he'd be lying like big time well <laughs> it's, it's always been his favorite like not his favorite creature feature because that's probably Frankenstein, and he's said that a lot. If if you consider that, you know, creature feature. But as far as you know, the like head to toe guy in a suit kind of creature feature, um, creature from the Black Lagoon is always the thing he cites as his favorite kind of monster makeup, you know, dude in a suit. And so he wanted to do a movie that was that, but his version of it and kind of a modern take on it. So he he's never been coy about the fact that this was sort of a stealth retelling of that idea. It's his Creature from the Black Lagoon fanfic. Yeah, because I mean, he had, he had even really said, is. you know, he 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 wanted to do a, a version of the story that focused primarily on the love story between the creature and the human woman, which he does in this movie primarily here. Yeah, and apparently at one point he was approached by Universal to do the creature from the Black Lagoon as a remake. I can see them seeing something in the vein of this movie and saying this isn't really what we're looking for yeah because yeah. they wanted marvel <laughs> from it and this is uh not marvel at all um yeah. they wanted a more they would want i mean they wanted that to be their their action franchise and mm -hmm. there's no action in this movie well he his pitch was Creature from the Black Lagoon, but, I mean, I don't want to say, but it's a rom-com, but it is a successful romance. 
was what his pitch was. It's creature from the Black Lagoon, but they live happily ever after. And the studio was like, ha, 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 no. And he was like, well, I'll make my own creature from the Black Lagoon with Blackjack and Hookers, and I'll win an Oscar for it. And that's kind of what he did. Uh, which, yeah. props to you, Guillermo, please continue doing that, you amazing shining diamond, you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know i mean i wouldn't be surprised if he gets another at least another oscar nomination from that upcoming uh pinocchio animated movie he's he's, he's coming out with i would hope so i'm i'm a little i've never seen him do something that seems geared to, more towards children but i wouldn't see why he I, I mean, know, I have, like, he did in him, so. technically. I mean, he did do that remake of The Witches for HBO Max, but um, that movie can no longer be viewed. Did he direct it or did he produce it? Because he, he does produce it. That was that was, okay, produ yeah. that was producing, but he was yeah. involved with it. All right. Yeah, he did produce scary stories to tell in the dark, and that is Chef's Gifts, perfect baby's first horror story, uh, starter. I mean, he also, he did direct that Troll Hunters Tales of Arcadia thing. Oh, for Netflix, right. yeah. Um, okay. Which I haven't watched. Um, it's pretty awesome. You know, it's, I mean, not a lot of his directing has really gone for uh, children, I guess. Um. It's going to be interesting to see. Um, I kind of wonder if his, like, I'm directing for children is going to be a little bit like, uh, hi, I'm Neil Gaiman and I'm writing for children. Please get them into therapy now. <laughs> you know, which no. is like, you know, it's like, yeah, children will read this, but you're going to end up with very peculiar children. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that I'm not and it's not that I'm discouraging that by any means. <laughs> Both him and Gaiman seem to get kids like being scared. They really do. When they know it's uh, something like a book or a movie or something like that, they they're more resilient than you would think. They'll bounce right back from that and they'll ask you for more. So source, I was the weird kid who was like, yes, take me to this. I want to see this scary movie or scary thing. And uh, I love it. I'm terrified the entire time. Uh, my parents will think I'm going to have stroke, but seriously, I loved every second of this. I want to see it again. Oh, same. And I was also that type of kid. And source, both Neil and Guillermo were that type of kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you grow up as that type of kid and you end up with that type of adult. Absolutely. Yes. But the um, the thing is, is I just I'm thinking that's probably what we're going to end up with. You know, it's it's probably not going to be like, you know, and and now here's just a, you know, sweetness and light that it's going to be like. No, kids, the the world is a deeply screwed up place. Here's how you survive it. You We're know. not getting Disney's Pinocchio from Del Toro. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is not Walt's Pinocchio. This is, this is going short. to be like a, you know, a, a weirdo adult who also 
is trying to find whatever scrap of joy they can in the world, which I think is how most of us who grow up as that kind of kid end up. Like, I have seen the darkness. Now let me try to, you know, find the one candle left. Um, which I think is is also kind of what we get in this movie. Because that's kind of the point in this movie. He calls it in all of the inter- interviews about it. This is his fairy tale for adults. This this was his attempt to to write a fairy tale for adults. It's a very adult story. I mean, the very first scene is a woman getting into a bathtub and masturbating. Um, that it, it tells you right away that this is not for kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this feels like Del Toro's Beauty and the Beast more than Del Toro's Creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, it's it's both. I mean, it's it's a blending of those two stories, and he also calls it that in interviews. It's it's also his attempt at Beauty and the Beast, but it's his Beauty and the Beast where be- neither Beauty nor the Beast has to change. The idea is society is what's messed up. And there are a lot of instances of that in the movie. Yes, very much so. Um, I, the Michael Shannon character is the worst of America stuffed into one person I, I've seen in a movie. And it, you mentioned the dark universe being a turnoff from it. There was... I'm not sure if that was because I honestly don't think enough people cared about the dark universe for it to be a turnoff. But I did have some uh, friends is a strong word, but people I knew got genuinely upset about his character and, and how he was portrayed and like how they called it uh, essentially a socialism, the movie, and how it basically degraded everything about America, and it was pretty hilarious, but I kind of wonder if that's why almost it doesn't get as much notice as some of the other movies, because this, I think it's his most overtly political movie as well. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's socialism, the movie, I mean, but it's... I mean, he is... Making the, a political he, statement. Yeah, he's the antithesis to every one of the main characters. He's ableist, he's racist, he's misogynistic, and, you know, again, you know, totally doesn't like the creature because he's different. He says, you know, God made man looking like me and not looking like that creature. Or the black woman sitting in front of me that I'm talking to right now. Yeah. Hence the I, I racism. Mean, he goes that far. <laughs> God looks like me, the white man, not like you, the black woman. I mean, it's it's not subtle. No, not uh, at all. And maybe that did turn off people. Like that that there was there is no subtlety in this movie. No. No, no, no. It's I wonder again, I'm still trying to circle back to why is it the least 
talked about of his movies that at least in my circles and i wonder if that is part of it too because even crimson peak is not subtle about being a gothic romance and uh well i mean more subtle than this none none of his bigger films i mean it's been a while since i've watched say mimic you know so uh i can't i can't necessarily go back and and be like okay what are the political themes of mimic directly off the top of my head because i probably haven't seen it since you know 2000 maybe um but like Hellboy's a kind of political movie. I mean, Pan's Labyrinth uh, is, you know, set in, like, you know, the Franco regime that is, like, you know, I mean, that's, like, right in the middle of the Spanish Civil War, you know. Um, it's even, even like Crimson Peak is like, hey, let me do a movie about feminism disguised as a, a gothic horror. Everything. So it's not like, it's not like, oh yeah, this is the first time he's done a political film. So if you're, if you're coming into del toro's works and is like oh no this is the moment he got political then you know welcome to the party you haven't been paying attention i think it's the era it's specifically the 50s and this was maga time and 50s is the time they all want to go back to and people like uh this guy i know is how dare you point out that the time I I think is magical, happy, sparkly times. I'm sorry, the 60s, not the 50s. The yeah. The 60s. Uh, yeah. As magical, happy, sparkle time where everybody had, you know, that nice teal Cadillac. Uh, if you point out, no, everybody didn't, and it was pretty awful for a lot of people, then uh, they get pissed. So you can't really put that disconnect like, oh, this is in another country, so it's not the same thing like you put with, say, Dan's Labyrinth, or this was in the Victorian era. Of course, everything was awful then like it was during the Crimson Peak. Yeah. So it's and or this is a complete fantasy world like in Hellboy. So I don't know. I don't really understand why it's the least talked about among them. Um, I'm just uh, mostly spitballing about that. Could it be the least talked about because it's the... I, I mean, let's just put it out there. Could it be the least talked about because it's the movie where the woman has sex with the fish guy? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not saying that's not a factor. <laughs> uh, I'm saying uh, when it comes to that, even, you know, the monster puppet friends and I have let me down there because 
they'll be all thirsting over Hellboy and thirsting over the werewolves and stuff. And uh, I've even seen a few kaiju fuckers in there. God bless their ambitious little hearts. But um, <laughs> they, do you think it would be talked about more if the fish man was like eight Can foot tall? <laughs> I was thinking if the, if, if, the, if the fish man was more conventionally attractive, because, well, I will you know. fight you on the fact that the fish man oh, is more conventionally attractive. Okay. Okay. I yeah. mean, I I mean this her. is this is this is a muscular, well-bodied fish man played this by Doug Jones. Come on, what more do you want? I mean, we're as we are recording this, we're all there's a bunch of people on the internet upset that the new Gomez Adams is not conventionally attractive. My only problem with the new Gomez Adams is I want the hairstyle to just be slightly different. Just push that hairstyle back about an inch from his eyes so you can see his eyes a little bit more. Because Gomez Adams usually has very expressive eyes. I think the hairstyle crowds his eyes a little bit more. Other than that, Luis Guzman, perfect casting. Yeah. No notes other than that. Uh, One note. Straighten the hair a little. But that's it. Um, and I want to get this unrecorded, like, for all to hear, for all and sundry, preserved for the aliens who come down and discover the dust that was once the Earth. Uh, that fish man is totally fuckable, okay? That is the most fuckable fish man there is. That, that, who, whoever, whoever sculpted that ass mm-hmm. deserved a special Lifetime Achievement Oscar. I don't know who was in charge of that part of the suit, but please give them a special Lifetime Achievement Oscar. (laughs) That was that was brilliant work. I hope that his day goes like a Disney princess or her day goes like a Disney princess wherever she goes, like little birds fly out and put extra change in the parking meter just for them. I, I know that there were both men and women who worked on the sculpt of that suit. I do not know who was in charge of that particular part of that suit. But bravo to you, sir or madam, for Indeed. that particular part of that suit, because it was glorious. All right. The only other, you know, uh, why people may not be into this movie... Or talk about this movie as much as as others because um, the main actor in this movie, our our, our main you know our, our main character Sally Hawkins, uh, our main actor Sally Hawkins here. Um, there are a lot of people who kind of only know her as the mom from Paddington. So the see the mom from Paddington, bang a fish guy. <laughs> See, okay. I have I have never seen the Paddington movies, so I didn't even know she was connected to that. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, I had no idea. Um, I wouldn't be sorry if that's the factor. Uh, I gonna say that like I I know her from from this 
and like the the Godzilla movies. Yeah. She, she's in the Godzilla movie. Like, I don't watch Paddington. I'm sorry. I watch kaiju films. <laughs> that, that's, that's where that's where I'm at in my viewing. So, um, that's, you know, talking teddy bear movie, not really my thing. Kaiju destroying city, I'm there. Um, Speaking of remakes, she's supposed to be in the upcoming Willy Wonka remake for Netflix. I'm, I may watch that. I can see that, actually. She kind of has, I'm assuming it's Charlie's mom. She has that vibe. Could it be? But speaking of the main character, could it be that a lot of people don't want to go watch a movie where it's like, hey, your main character does not speak? Possibly. Mm-hmm. Either one. If you want to go, you know, because the, the fish man doesn't speak, obviously, and we have our main character, Eliza, who is mute. And communicates through sign primarily language. through sign language. Uh, I mean, and bravo on the the use of... Uh, it's, it's not... Um, it, it is mostly ASL um, there through through this it's not what she what she uses tends to be smaller single word things there are points in the movie where she gets longer fuller sentences with more complete grammar um and those are quite beautiful um Although, uh, most of the, the movie tends to be her communicating in, you know, just two or three words at a time, at most. And spelling a few of them out. Yeah, um, it's some finger spelling in places where it seemed kind of odd to me that they would be using finger spelling in that situation rather than... Uh, a single sign. Uh, I don't know what the particular reasoning behind that was. If any of you know, Gimio Del Toro. <laughs> yeah, if anybody, well, yeah, if anybody knows Kira Del Toro, I have much more interesting questions than that, but, um, yeah. The, um, but I, I thought that was, that was fascinating. That, that 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 particular thing was kind of fascinating because I'm always uh, interested in in the use of and the choice of of language in that way. Um, but the you know let's let's talk more about the the story I guess um, specifically. And the plot and what we we liked or didn't or... Yeah. Honestly, one thing I did like is that every one of our main characters... uh, There's a term that's kind of been going around uh, Disney, especially Disney Park fans over the last couple of weeks, uh, called the unfavorable mix. Um, And that's kind of how I describe a lot of the main characters. Because you have Elisa, who is mute. 
and a woman in the 60s. And you've got Zelda, who is a black woman in the, in the 1960s. You have Giles, who is a closeted gay man. And, of course, there is the fish man, who is seen as a freak of nature because he's not human. All of them seen seen as unfavorable to the higher class, as if, if you want to call that. Especially, especially uh, Strickland, the main, the, our our main villain here. The the academic term for this is the other. Yeah. Um. Marginalized people. Yeah, you can you could use the term marginalized, but when we when we speak of it in kind of academic media criticism, we talk about the other. Um I would also add the the character of Hofstadler slash Dimitri to this because you can tell that he is out of place in either America or the Soviet Union because when he's speaking to his handlers you can tell that his desires are not theirs uh, because he really does care about science and learning whereas uh, Nigel Bennett's gorgeous uh, 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 character uh, Mikhail Kolovich I think his name is uh, but you know he says you know we don't need you know the, the Soviet Union doesn't need to learn they just need America not to learn mm-hmm. um, because they're not interested in uh, the amphibian man for any sort of education they just you know the americans want him so the americans can't have him and honestly the americans feel the same way yeah they know that the the russians want him so we can't so we can't let them have him yeah and Uh, he is the only one he's the scientist that cares about actual knowledge and preservation of knowledge and preservation of life in this situation and so he is an outcast on both sides especially when both sides are saying we need to kill the creature so the other side doesn't get him and he's like no we we cannot do that this is a living creature we need to learn more about him and his species and it's a scientific marvel and everyone is saying you know we don't care about that i have to admit i was actually surprised uh on the rewatching that they gave a reason for wanting him wanting to study him at all. Like they said, oh, this will be very useful in the space race for going up in space and discovering how to do things like, say, breathe liquid oxygen in a human. And I, I actually applaud if Del Toro put that he go because it does seem like the kind of thing that they would use it for and then the military would just decide Yeah, and it is fascinating that 
we were studying creatures for that sort of thing. Um, and it, we were studying a lot of aquatic creatures for that sort of reason during the, the 50s and 60s. Um, of if we ever went to space, well, the only thing we have like that on Earth is ocean travel. You know, it's a, a place where we can't get oxygen. Well, how do sea creatures deal with it? Let's try to figure that. You know, how do we deal with underwater environments and scuba tanks? And uh, it's a place where gravity doesn't quite work in the same way. So it it really is kind of fascinating that he used that as a reason for them to be studying the the creature there. Because uh, it, it does work, and we did that sort of thing, so... Um. I, I will point out, since since I just name-dropped Nigel Bennett, um, one of the weird things to me about Guillermo del Toro is there are times I wonder if he was doing the same things that I was to some extent in the 90s, and one of the things I wondered watching this movie was, was he watching the same vampire shows I was in the 90s? Because this movie has one of the weirdest... Uh, reunions of actors from a of a TV show ever because it contains both Nigel Bennett and John Capelos who were both in the TV show Forever Night hmm. and it's like the first project they've worked on I think since that show and I'm just like what what why are they both in this movie and what but but i but i'm like that is exactly the type of weird little off-kilter nonsense vampire show that Guillermo del Toro was probably into <laughs> in, the, in the early to mid 90s and probably would have been very into as well because there's a lot of things that i keep hearing him talk about that i was like yeah, dude, I was I was into that too. Um, so I I like him because he seems to have the same sort of fanboy brain I do, and I'm just like, yeah, if I could make a weirdo movie, I would probably just put obscure actors from like random nonsense that only I remember as well. Also, David Hewlett from Stargate is in this as well. So yeah, I mean. Why not put Rodney McKay in your weird little fish fucking movie? Yeah, that's <laughs> Guillermo. I support you. Please keep doing bizarre things. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, the uh, I mean, he also just randomly puts Burn Gorman in his films. I, I don't know why he keeps doing that, but please keep doing that. Burn Gorman's not in this film. I just support it. Keep casting Burn Gorman and things. Um, but as far as the the kind of uh, why they're doing this, I I really want to know, and we never know why they sent 
Michael Shannon down to the Amazon to capture the fish man. But I kind of want to know that backstory. Like, how did they hear about the fish man? They're, they do say something about the natives in the Amazon trying to disrupt oil drills. So it sounds like he might have been like part of a part of a military mission that was there to protect some sort of oil rig and maybe the fish man tried to go out there to defend the tribes people or something I mean, and they also captured. they also mentioned that the tribes people see the, see the fish man as a god so yeah i mean i i have a feeling that like the us went down there to drill for oil and it was probably some sort of sacred area that the tribes people were trying to protect yeah, and and probably just in the combat or whatever, they were like, oh, holy fish god, please help us, they're murdering us. And fish god was like, yeah, what's up? I'll, I'll go protect you. And it did not go the way fish god thought. And oops, now I've been captured. I mean, it's kind of the best story that I, that you can get out of the little bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. I yeah. got a slight vibe that that general that um, came in, I forget his name, um, but that he and uh, still, oh, I'm blanking all the names right now. That him and main bad guy had known each other for a while, and that main bad guy was kind of his dude. Whenever there was a big mission or some sort of thing that needed to be done and done now and done right, that's what he sent in that guy for, and that he might have been sent specifically to uh, catch the fish man after maybe incidents with the uh, rig. You think maybe, like, Fishman was holding his own until Michael Shannon got there? Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the implication is these two served together previously in some sort of military operation. So you might be right. Yeah, I mean, the general does very specifically mention by name at least one other, you know, major conflict that they've they've been in together um that had you know uh something you know to do with it um which i'm blanking on right now uh and really shouldn't be. um but the the thing is is as far as the the capture um of the asset as they're calling him you know when they when they bring him him back though it does seem like maybe they they went a few rounds in the amazon and that they maybe they lost some men in that because michael shannon is like really mad 
Yeah. <laughs> like, he has a, a little... I mean, he already is kind of the paragon of toxic masculinity for this movie. But he seems to have a particular beef with the fish man. Uh, yeah. What we goes, get... what. But what we get is that, you know, we traveled all these hours together on the way here and we grew not to like each other. I, I'm not even sure. It's that. Like, he seems to really want to show this guy who's boss in a way that goes a little over and above. Mm-hmm. I mean, l- like like we mentioned, he sees himself as God's perfect man. So to see this, what he would consider a freak of nature, he would want to just uh, put it in its place or what he believes this creature's places. Yeah. I, I get a grudge out of it. Like, there, he hates, hates this thing, not just as a concept, not just as a, an antithesis of your everything, I, I stand for, but you have done something to me or mine in a way that makes me hate you. I mean, like, he does take two of his fingers. Yeah, but it's... for that... <laughs> Yeah, but he was he was already torturing him with a cattle prod and stuff before that. And we know that he was because we see the scene in the bathroom where he's talking to the two women and Eliza finds the the blood that's been left on the cattle prod and stuff. And that's before he takes the fingers. So we already know that there's been like significant torture and stuff. And so the, it's not in retaliation. The fingers were in retaliation. Uh, the torture was, you know, before that. Um, so I, I do kind of wonder if, you know, what what the the catalyst was for that. He does seem to have you know, the um, Strickland, Michael Shannon's character, does seem to have a great disdain for anything different than him. Yes, but there does seem to be something extra that happened, maybe. And and like I said, I don't know if it was, you know, maybe Fishman took out, like, a bunch of his troops or, you know, did a lot of damage to... Something uh, we don't we don't know we don't get that part of the backstory, but it is fascinating. It, he also seems like the kind of guy that would just kick a puppy for fun, though. Yeah. So you you don't know. I mean, was there an inciting incident, or is this just a guy that would kick a puppy because it's there? My thing is that he's just an asshole. He is just an asshole, but if you look at him while he's at home, there's some... He genuinely has affection for his wife and his kids. Like, he's not... But does he, though? Look at that thousand-yard stare when he's at home, and the way she talks to him. That's not affection. Like, that weird, weird. And I love the way that it's filmed, and bravo to... Like the direction and the acting in that that one sex scene we get with him and his wife, because that is the most uncomfortably weird sex scene the in most, a movie that has a woman fucking a fish man. The most uh, 
unloving sex scene. It is the most off-putting instance of supposedly loving marital relations <laughs> I think I've that, ever seen rendered on film. And the well, fact he's constantly telling her to be quiet, to be quiet, because at this point in the movie, he's kind of had this thing for Eliza because she doesn't talk. But then again, he seems to be the kind of man that, oh, it's a woman that doesn't talk. Perfect. Oh, yeah. But, but look I'm... at the way his wife treats him, though. And it's all, it's like he's sitting there at the table and his kids come in and his kids are doing the thing that all kids do. Like, Dad, guess what? Guess what? Guess what? Guess what? Guess what? And he is such a weirdly broken man. He doesn't yell at his kids. It's not like that. What? You're annoying me. He just eventually is like, what? Do you think we'll have rocket ships? Yes, this is America. We'll have whatever we damn well want. And the like, he's time, just he doesn't so... He, he doesn't, doesn't look at the kids. Yeah. He doesn't make eye co- He's just staring straight forward. And like, yeah, you can be like, well, he just had his fingers fit, bitten off by a fish man or what. But... The kids are not like, is daddy okay today? They're just like, yep, that's normal daddy. You he, know? He would rather be anywhere else than there. Yeah. Well, and he's so different than the way he is at work. Like, at work, he's more animated. He's more, like, the second he gets home, it's just like, here's my robot mode. And then the wife comes in, and what does she say? Wash your hands really well and then come to the bedroom. And then what does she do the second he gets in the bedroom? She sniffs his hand to make sure he's cleaned it well enough to touch her. Which is a nice callback to earlier in the movie when we first meet him as he refuses to wash his hand after he's gone to the bathroom. Because it's a weakness of character. How weird is it that he's gone out of his way to think about how he washes his hands after he pisses in a manner of character rather than basic You know what he's saying, though, right? You know what he means by weakness of character, yes? Have so you I'm... ever talked to that kind of man before, Tasha? God, no, thank God. Okay, I can tell you exactly what he's saying. He's saying, and I'm just going to to use to say it the the way those men have said it to me before, because I've had that same conversation with that same type of man. If a, if a man washes his hands too many times in the bathroom, he's queer. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. I, mean, I have had that exact same conversation with that exact same type of man. Also, I mean, it's kind of come around in the last couple of years, especially with, with you know, as a kind of a, a rebellion to COVID. No, we're not going to wash our hands. And men openly stating that they don't use soap when they bathe. Yeah, well, it's don't wash so their weird. Asses or yeah. yeah, yeah. If, if if you touch your own rear end, you're gay. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's so weird. But that is exactly the mindset that he's talking about. And when he says weakness of character, that's what he means. And when she says that he puts his hands on his hips when he pees, 
that's also why he does that. Because if he touches himself, that's what that means. See, there is one thing, though, that I think kind of contradicts that, but at the same time reinforces it, and it actually makes him more disturbing for me, because he kisses his son and lets his son kiss him. And that... To me, it just strikes me as a detail that. But he but think about how old him. his son is. I, mean, I guarantee I you, in another like two years, he'll start popping his son for that. You know, I I mean, I'm not I'm not kidding. It oh. it will be like you're too old for that now. Man up, mm-hmm. stop it. You but you I, I out of that. Get- I get the vibe from him that he specifically lets his son kiss him and will kiss his son back specifically to have a, no, I don't think about this too much. What do you mean I'm thinking of putting too much thought into this? I can't possibly be queer as something like that. That's the vibe I got from that, that he specifically allows this much affection not because he wants it not because he feels any sort of love for his son but this is his backup plan maybe but yeah but but there's so many of those in a movie that does touch on homophobia and 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 all that with the the giles character and everything i I, those little touches of of the that with the strickland character really resonate of that this is how he's been and and, you know he was in the military and you know all that kind of stuff so you know that's where he's he's been picking it up of of that um and that that's that weird sex scene between him and and the way his wife talks to him of like you know Yes, you deserve a car. You deserve a Cadillac. You know, touch me here. Do that. But the second that they get into bed, he's covering her mouth. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's so bizarre. And it's so uncomfortable. And the way that it carries over to, you know, his dealings with Eliza. And you know that that's what he's thinking about. And. You know, it it is such a bizarrely filmed scene, but it's so perfect in the way it sets up the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think that it's it's so great of like how unhappy this man is, and in a way you feel sorry for him. Because even though he's the villain, you know he wasn't born that way. He is an entire product of that society. It's it's like he's in a situation he can't control at home, so he tries to control the situation at his job. But But it's not that. He could probably be in a better situation at home if he'd, I don't know, talk to his wife he's it's also the situation of the living situation they're living in baltimore 
And the family seems to really like living in Baltimore. He hates it. He doesn't want to live in Baltimore. He doesn't want to live anywhere near there. He just he wants to be anywhere else but Baltimore, even though the entire family seems to love living there. And it's another situation of a thing he you know, he's only living there because of his job. I honestly the vibe I get from him more than anything else is he's become exactly what this society wants him to be. He's become the one hundred percent perfect, this is what I should be, and I hate it. Why am I not happy? And I'm going to take it out on the things that aren't living like the way it the way the society says it it they should because they are they seem a heck of a lot happier than I do. And and that's the thing I think that is the the point, yeah, is that he has done all of the things that he has been told should make him happy and denied whatever it is that might have been inside of him. We have no idea who this guy should have been. Maybe like we don't know when he was a little kid. What did he want to do? What did he want to be? You know, like what were you as a little kid? But it's obvious that whatever that was, was not the dude who tortures fishmen for the government. You know, and lives in Baltimore. (laughs) I think the closest we get is when he's pleading with the general and he says a man does everything he can to be useful. He wanted to be somebody who made things better in some way, who was useful in a way beyond I'm just going to torture fishmen or something like that. And he's not. And on top of that, he's failed. Well, there comes a point in the movie, and and this I think is the point that is missed by maybe a lot of people watching it and I mean and definitely the sort of people that should have it you know pounded into their skulls but I think the the really obvious point is there there comes the point in the movie where everyone sees what is happening to the fish man. He is being tortured. He is going to be killed. And we have all these people. We have Eliza. We have Zelda. We have Hofstetler. We have Giles, who's not even there, but who sees Eliza's pain and decides to help, you know. And they all decide, like, we're we're not just going to stand by and let this happen, okay? And they organize this escape. 
But then in the aftermath, Strickland has his choice. He is told by the general, like, you get out there and you find the fish man or we're going to make you disappear, basically. You're going to be nothing. Your entire career, you know, you have, what, 36 hours, I think he gives him, Hmm. to find the fish man, make it right. Or we will, there will be a hole in the universe in the shape of you. And all of that that you did, all of that sacrifice, all of that denial of yourself, all of this stuff that you did will have been for nothing. It will be as if you never existed. And this is right after, uh, as, as, as Tess said, you know, he makes one mistake. Isn't he allowed to make one mistake? And the general's pretty much telling him, no, you don't get yeah. to make any mistakes. And because you made a mistake, we are going to make it that you don't. It was, it was like you said, it would be like you never existed. And the thing is, at that point, Strickland has a choice. And it is echoed in what Eliza says. If, you know... You know, Giles says that the fishman isn't human, and Eliza says, if we do nothing to help him, neither are we. And Strickland has that choice. He has seen that this system he has given his life to does not care about him. It is not a reciprocal system. It is an evil, soulless system that will take from him and never give back. The ultimate and abusive he, relationship. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It is the ultimate in dehumanization. It will take everything you are, and then it will erase you the second you step out of line. And he looks directly into the face of that, and he has a choice. All he has to do is just let the fish man go. At that point, he has no idea who took the fish man. He just has to not pursue it. He can just go home to his family and leave Baltimore. Be anyone else. Was it a death threat, though? It might have been. But you know what? It's the freaking 60s. It's a lot easier to disappear in the 60s. No cell phones. <laughs> you know? It's not like they have a GPS tracker on him. See, It's the 60s. His... You know, it, I'm not saying it wouldn't be difficult. It's possible. Skip mm-hmm. over the border to Canada and disappear, okay? But the, the point is, all he has to do is just say no or spend the next 36 hours Desperately attempting to find the fish man, and oopsie doopsie, I couldn't find the fish man, you know? But the the point is that he has a choice. He has a choice. And he chooses to go out there and hunt down the fish man and that's what leads to his bad end 
is there there was theoretically a way that he could have salvaged something that he could have possibly continued it could be a situation where he thought he was in too deep that there was no out that the only way out was to for lack of a better term finish the mission but you know what it's it's still his choice yeah I never, I did not actually get the vibe that it wasn't desperate. I just got it. This is a your career is over. You're getting transferred to Siberia now, which for a guy like that, that's honestly worse. To be known as a failure on that level, to fall that hard, and yeah, it's like Eliza said, "Are we even human?" And at that point, Strickland isn't human anymore. I don't think that Strickland would kiss his son or similar. Yeah. Um, I mean, he tries to he tries to cover it up. Strickland tries to cover it up like, hey, you know, like, well, we don't we won't tell anybody. No one will know. We'll we'll we'll, we'll make we'll do a, a covert search. And and, you know, but. Uh, David Hellett's uh, David Hellett's character, Fleming's like, well, I just called the boss as soon as it happened because we need to do that. And they. Now he's into it. <laughs> now he's in yeah. it. And that's fucking, uh, what's his face? Uh, Stitzel. Not Stitzel. I will never remember his name. Michael Shannon's character's uh, fault, too, because he was the one who was like, oh, yes, protocol for this, protocol for that. And it's been shown that it bites you in the ass. I mean, Dimitri got the mouth off to you for it. Yeah. It's his, yeah, because that's what the movie said, you know, protocol, protocol, protocol. And protocol finally bit him in the ass at the end. Something that I wonder about uh, at the end, where um, the the fish man goes to escape and he's about to escape, and then Fleming uh, he gets shot by uh, Michael Shannon's dudes. Um, I won't call him Schnitzel, but that's not his name. Uh, he. Um, finally gets right in his face after having survived being shot and Michael Shannon's character says you are a god in that voice of total awe what do you think would have happened to him if he had lived after that because I can I think that that realization was his world breaking apart in a way that it I don't know he would have recovered from he might have ended his own life at that point. Like everything he knows is a lie at that point. And there's no going back. It's whether in belief or in professionalism, because he couldn't get the fish man back. His career is over. His worldview has been shattered. I don't think he'd be able to live with himself and probably take his own life. You have the gun in his hand. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, had he had he lived, he probably would have gone crazy. He would have would have probably been the the guy gibbering about you know the fish man, the the <laughs> the fish gods are coming to end the world or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that that to me though is is the the moment of recognition. There is there is a moment that they cut from the movie. That I've that I've heard them talk about um, that you know when they I I wish I could I wish I'd seen the footage it might be out there like in a deleted scene and I just haven't seen it 
but you know there is the the mo- the point in the film that the reason they have to release him so early you know eliza's been keeping the fish man in her apartment but he's getting sicker um because he's been staying in the tiny little bathtub and what happens when you keep a fish in a too small tank, you know? Um, but he's getting sicker and sicker. And so they're going to release him early and then, um, they get him out into the rain. And there is a moment that is, it was meant to be shown, but is now just off screen where, once they get him out into the rain, he begins to heal because he's now in a larger environment and more water. Um, that apparently was just really beautifully acted by Doug Jones in going from the sickly state to finally being that like beautiful godlike, uh, physically imposing stance that he has um, out there in the rain toward the end. And I really wish they had kept that um, because I think it would have given a little more power to that moment at the end of Michael Shannon realizing that that moment of, you know, you are a God. Um, I I I think the other kind of you are a god moment that that really gets me is is Giles when he he has the healing moment and he mm-hmm. wakes up with the full with head the head hair. full of hair and his his wounds are healed and we he comes gibbering to Eliza and he's like well they they say that they were worshiping him as a god in the Amazon. And is he a god? I don't know. He ate a cat. <laughs> like, I just, I love how those things are connected in his brain. Like, what do gods do? They eat cats. Of course, that's what, that's what gods do. <laughs> like, oh, that part. I do want to pour that one out for the little kitty, though. Like, that poor cat that didn't poor deserve cat. it. I covered my kitty's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> That that's the only part of the movie I'm just like oh no 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 I can't watch this for like any Del Toro movie everything else I'm just like yes the guy just got a knife through a cheek yes that guy got stabbed in the face like five times and then there's a cat and I lose my shit I'm so <laughs> I know right do do whatever you want to a human leave leave <laughs> the animals out of it I mean there's an entire website dedicated to does the dog die in the movie that website is amazing. Thank you to the people who run that website. Yeah. yeah. Um n- No, that knife that knife through the cheek, that is my favorite effect in any Del Toro movie. You can feel every single inch of that blade watching that that effect, let me tell you. Um that bullet hole in the cheek too. Uh, uh. That yeah, that that one the bullet hole in the cheek in this in this film good effect but that that knife through the cheek because you do the you do the going in and the coming out and the oh it's such a good effect the um i love that the slow build of the romance because at first it's just like she knows there's something in the tank 
from when they first bring him in. Because she's just cleaning near the tank and there's like a noise and the water's moving and she puts her hand on it and, you know. Um, and then she she does the, the thing where she puts the the egg and, you know, he tries to, to grab at it and everything. And at first it's like... It's just how you would gain an animal's trust. But then very quickly, it moves beyond that. And it then it moves up to like, well, are we teaching a chimp sign language here? Like, you know, because she teaches him the sign for egg. But then it becomes like, well, let's talk about music and let's talk about, you know, and it, it, it's it's such a fascinating kind of slow build to the, the romance to eventually it's becoming more and more of, you know, she's got him in her apartment and she's bringing him greeting cards and they're having breakfast together <laughs> um to the to the moment where you've got that entire gorgeous fantasy sequence in the ballroom yeah this thing this movie has a as a musical number yeah and I like how it kind of starts. Like, she's very frustrated. Like, like she has these feelings for him. She doesn't really know how to express them. And she, you can, you know, her voice, she's trying to struggle to talk. And it's only coming out as bare whispers. And then she starts mouthing along to the song. It's my only complaint about the movie is we, it's not actually the actress singing. But it does make sense since the character can't talk. Yeah, but I like that she starts, she's signing it to him. Mm -hmm. And then in her head, she's singing it to him. And then she finishes it, signing it to him. So, we're just seeing her Hollywood fantasy. But while he's been eating, she's probably just been signing along with the lyrics of the song that we're hearing from underneath because it's been playing from either Giles's TV next door or from the theater below them. It's kind of unclear where the song is coming from, but it's one of those two places. Um, and she's just signing along with the, but it's probably too complex for him to understand. He's not even looking at her for most of the time. He's just, yeah, he's, he's not really, he's not really looking at her, but she's, she's signing along with the song. And then you can tell that in her in her brain she's imagining what it would be like to sing along with the song 
and dance with him, you know, in that same vibe. And we've what? seen her dance through throughout the movie in small little steps, you know, little things with Giles or down the hallway or, you know, the that little that little thing after she sees um the the tap dance number with Bojangles and and Shirley Temple and she starts tapping on uh, uh, as she leaves the uh the apartment. That was probably that was a really cute scene. Yeah. And who hasn't done that honestly? Yeah. <laughs> Here's a question. When do you think we fully know that the monster or the asset is at least human-like? Not, like you said, just an animal, a, a chimp we've taught sign, sign language, that it's able to reciprocate those feelings. What would you say the moment is? I wouldn't even know. I mean, it's it's, it's it happens so gradually that it's it's hard to tell where there's a single point. I think. I think for me, it's the moment in the the movie theater where where he tries to escape and he just watches the movie. An animal scared. In that same situation, would do one of two things. It would find a small space that it could hide in, and it would stay there until it felt safe. Okay. Um, so, you know, it, it would generally find something just big enough for itself. And it would curl up in there and wait until it felt safe uh, or it needed food or, you know, to relieve itself or whatever. And it would stay there. Or it would go out and attack the first thing it sees, which would, you know, there's a busy street right outside. It would have started attacking people. And it would have been mayhem. So had the fish man just been an animal, it would have done one of those two things. It would have hidden in a small space or it would have become, begun a rampage until someone or something took it down. But he didn't. He ran out and ran down stairs and into the movie theater and then became transfixed by the film and stood there and waited for her to find him. He was in a place where he couldn't hurt anybody else because he just accidentally hurt somebody. He didn't want to do that again. But he was in a place nearby where she could find him. But he was watching the film. And he was in a position where he was kind of exposed. Yeah, he's he just standing in the theater. Yeah, he's just standing in the theater where theoretically anyone could find him. You know, it's it's not a very tactically 
safe maneuver. Um, and just waits for her. And that is a more human reaction, not an animalistic one. And so I think for me, that's the, that's definitely the point in the movie where I'm like, that's not an animal response. Mine came sooner when it was the actual music. Like it was listening to the music and responding to the music and uh, in a way that I'm not familiar with animals doing. I mean, maybe chimps and uh, higher primates do that sort of thing, but in the most part, animals don't seem to really care that much. Uh, I remember, again, um, in the Del Toro fan circles I run in and, and Twitter and things like that because it's Twitter and the discourse is dumb, but there was some talk of whether the the uh, absent could actually consent to sex with her. And uh, because it doesn't have human intelligence, but I, I think that the movie did a pretty good job of showing this is consent and this creature does have human intelligence. Well, do we want to get into my favorite theory? And the answer is yes, we do, because I want to get into it. <laughs> Go ahead. Which is the theory that is my personal theory. Is Eliza even human? Because I do not think this is a movie where a human woman fucks a fish man. I think this is a movie where two fish gods fuck each other. Because she has the scars on her neck. And we're never told where they come from or how she got them. We're told that she was she had them since she was a child. She was an orphan. She was found by a river. Yeah. She's not found by a river. She's found in a river. Hmm. They specifically say in the movie that she is found in the water. What Michael Shannon says is, and she was found with those scars on her neck. Who would do that to a child? Humans are awful monsters. Now, Eliza never says that someone did that to her. He says, oh, that's why you can't speak. Because of those scars on your neck, who would do that to a child? That's Michael Shannon giving supposition. But look at where those scars are. And think of where the vocal cords are in a human. If someone were to take a blade and slice on a human neck in that exact position, deep enough to sever the vocal cords, you'd hit the arteries well before you hit the vocal cords. And on an infant, they would bleed out in seconds. So for someone to do that to an infant, dump them in the water 
and leave so no one could know where they are. Then someone find that child, take them to a hospital in the 60s, do surgery enough to save that infant's life. You see where I'm getting at here? Wasn't and, it also in a Hispanic-speaking uh, country because her last name is Hispanic? Yeah, I mean, there might have just happened to have been a, a group of nuns in Baltimore, but they never say what river she's found by. They just say they found her in the water by a river. But yeah, her name is Eliza Esposito. So I'm guessing maybe not from Baltimore, but maybe there's just a, a group of, you know, nuns in Baltimore that all happen to be Hispanic. And I'm sure there's, you know, Hispanic populations in Baltimore. I'm not saying there's not, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Also, <laughs> also the very end of the movie. We know yeah. that the fish man can heal. He doesn't transform. Yeah, we only ever see him giving people things they already have. Regrowing hair, healing wounds, healing his own wounds. But think about it. She gets shot. He takes her into the water. And his first thought is not, I need to heal the bullet wound. That he leaves. But what he does do is he reaches for her throat and he opens her gills, which means his thought is, if I open her gills, she will heal her own wound. Because he is able to heal his own wound. And there's that moment earlier in the movie, right, right before the two have sex, where he's reaching for her throat in a loving way, but she backs off. It could be that he knows he has some sort of instinct that maybe she is one of his people or a similar type of people. Yeah, she might not be the exact same type of fish person he is. But, you know, because think of it like when when we enter the movie, we enter the movie coming into the apartment in water mm -hmm. and we come into her floating in water because she's dreaming and then she wakes up out of that dream she's not met the fish man yet why is she dreaming of water mm -hmm. she's not dreaming of her great love the fish man who she's already met this is her normal dream. Why does she start every single day submerging herself in the bath for a really erotic time? They constantly say that the fish man needs like a high protein diet. And what is the one thing we never really see her eating? during the movie like do we ever see this woman put a veggie in her mouth no it's eggs it's constantly eggs or like it's some sort of like 
tuna sandwich or something that she's eating or whatever. You know, they've tried to feed her key lime pie and she is disgusted by it. Because okay, it's like a fruit. A gross key lime pie. Well, yeah, it looks like a gross key lime pie, but but you get what I'm saying? Like yeah. every time she's seen eating something, it seems to be something very kind of protein heavy. Mm-hmm. You know. So she's constantly like she's she starts her day off with like three boiled eggs. Like that's not generally a typical human breakfast. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um so it's she's she does seem to just yes, she's off kilter, but also she's on the bus. And she's running her hand along. And you'd be like, yeah, she's tracing the the raindrops as they move along the window. But is she tracing her hand her her hand along the raindrops as they move along the window? Or is she moving the raindrops along the window? Because they never seem to be moving in like the normal pattern that the wind would suggest. So, you know, it's it, it, there's all these little touches in the film that I don't know if that's their intent, but it really seems like they put an awful lot of bizarre things in the film for it not to be their intent. So, I, I I don't know. They they put a lot of stuff in there about Giles being like, well, that's just my version of the story. And and Giles is possibly an unreliable narrator, so maybe Giles has put you know, like I'm I'm re I'm remembering my friend as if she were a also a fish creature or something to make this happier in my brain. Mm-hmm. because the government just straight up murdered my friend or whatever, but which is a possible interpretation. Possible. But and, there's but, so much in this film that's just like, nah, Eliza's also a fish creature. <laughs> and, I 100% and, believe she is a, a fish creature, she, that she at least has some fish creature blood. Yeah, maybe she's just half fish creature. Maybe her mom also fucked a fish creature. <laughs> it runs in the family. So she's Namor, you're saying? Maybe. <laughs> um, can we kind of go a little bit into into Giles' part of the story? Because it's, it's both sad and, in a way, it is very sad. Because you have Giles. He's in advertising. He works in advertising. He he draws up ads for, well, he draws up ads, and he's very um, unsuccessful, at least in, at least at this stage of his career, because he draws up an ad for Jello, and the the client says, "Well, we want it green Jello. We don't want red Jello." So he's trying his best to appease his client and. They really don't want him on the job. Well, and now they just take a photograph because yeah. we don't need you to draw it anymore. We just have really good 
photographs now because it's the 60s and we have cameras. But also, you mentioned the key lime pies. He goes to the one diner every day and buys a pie every day, not because he likes pies, but because he has a crush on the guy running the diner. And he has a crush on the guy running the diner because he has really good customer service. Well, as long as you're a certain type of customer. Yeah. I was was getting to that. I was getting, you know, he says, you know, he's, you know, he's very welcoming to everyone uh, during the first part of the movie. He listens to their problems and, you know, whatever. Come back anytime. Oh, did he mean when he said come back anytime? And then it's at the end where we see the black couple come in to say, hey, you're not allowed in here. You can't sit here. Your kind isn't welcome. All while Giles is coming to terms with his feelings for the diner guy. And he says, you know, I, I really, you know, you, you, you seem like you want to know me and I want to know you too. And tries to hold his hand. It's like, whoa, whoa. I am not about that life. And you can get out of here too because this is a family establishment and we don't want your kind here. But also, do you hear what he tells the black couple right after kicking him out? Don't come back here anymore. No, that's not what he says. Y'all come back now. He says the exact same corporate line. Mm -hmm. Because that's what he's supposed to say as a franchisee. Yeah. And that's that's what Giles hears. He wasn't saying, y'all come back because he wanted him to come back. He's saying it because... That's what you say because it's your job. And uh, as someone myself who does work in customer service, yeah, even if you don't like your customer or have a very difficult customer, you're still supposed to say, have a good day, even if you don't mean it. (laughs) Yeah, well, especially, you know, there are certain restaurant chains, especially that you have the specific script that you have to say. And if your boss hears you say something different, you get written up for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, go ahead. It wasn't only just that, because before he made the move, and he made the move before the black couple came in, and the guy was like, whoa, back off, and then the black couple came in, and the uh, pie guy jumped in with, no, no, takeout only for you and gave the y'all come back and all that but before that they were kind of bonded they were uh the guy was gen said he genuinely liked giles coming around and he liked talking to him he said you're a good conversationalist and that's part of what i like about this job the conversation and then giles made a move and he freaked out and then the black couple came in and he proved to be even more of a jerk. Giles said, you don't have to talk to them like that. And he was like, you get it out, too. Well, it the same line. It was, it, he, it, I think that is a little more devastating because it was almost a connection, at least a friendship connection, before this guy just said, no, not even close. Well, we talked about this, Tuesday and I have talked about this before when we talked about Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures, another Octavia Spencer movie. But there's that that moment of the 
sometimes between white people of like, oh, I'm a bigoted piece of trash and you're a white person. And I think that you're also going to be a bigoted piece of trash because you are also a white person. And I think that was the moment where he was like, I like you coming in here because I think we're the same. You seem educated and we have good conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where he was going with that, the diner guy. And I think that that was the thing that devastated Giles so much because he was an, you know, an older white man in the 60s, you know? And I think that the in that time of upheaval, you know, because this is a very political movie and Guillermo del Toro has been like, well, you know, I made this because of Trump. Like, let's not beat around the bush. This is I made this because, you know, Trump had just been elected and I wanted to be like, hey, can we stop demonizing, you know, marginalized people? Um, and so I think. I think one of the main points of the scene was that the, the, you know, the pie guy there is like, um, I, I like you coming around. Cause I think we, we connect on that level. Like you're one of, you're one of the ones that gets it. And then when Giles made the move immediately, he was like, Oh no, you're, you're not one of the bigoted pieces of trash. Like I am, you need to get out of here. Yeah. And then when he went the step further of standing up for the black couple, that really threw the pie guy. He's like, no, 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 you're, you are definitely not my kind of people. Like it's, it's bad enough. You made a pass, but now you're going to stand up for the black people. Mm -hmm. I think that, and I also think it was a character moment for Giles, because if you remember in the beginning when there were uh, the news had the civil rights on it, he was like, no, 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 change this. Put on the uh, pretty happy dancing Shirley Temple thing. Put on anything else. I don't want to see that unpleasantness. Yeah, he he didn't want to see black people struggling for their rights, but he did want to see, you know, Bojangles dancing happily on the staircase. Yeah, and like the most racist Shirley Temple film ever. That's total rebel right there. It's it's not a good thing. Um, Yeah. But uh, and then when he sees it in his face, he has the choice. He probably could have, at the very least, you know, played off, you know, oh, I was just joking, or I was just kidding. Yeah, you did a good job kicking them out of there, or even just kept his mouth shut. And he didn't. And he knew it torpedoed his chance. And I think that was the character moment for him when he's like, you know what, this is bullshit. This guy's bullshit. Fuck him. Yeah, he had a moment where he could have said, oh, you you misread me earlier. That was not what I meant at all. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, he had a moment where he could have pulled it back. And much like Michael Shannon's character, he had he had a choice. And he chose to be himself um granted it it cost him you know his local pie place which honestly can we talk about how awful that pie place looked it's like the dixie diner or whatever but it it's a good a pie which is like 
I guess that guy's supposed to be Italian. Yeah, I guess he's supposed to be Italian, but they make us talk in a bad southern accent and say, y'all come back now or whatever, but our slogan is Italian or something. Like, who designed this pipeline? <laughs> like, I was just caught up in how hideous that key line is. Key line is like my favorite guy. And just sitting there looking at that neon green atrocity. Yeah, it was it was a it was a it was a key lime pie the color of ecto cooler, which should appeal to me, but did not. <laughs> like I love key lime pie; it's one of my favorite things, and I love ecto cooler, also one of my favorite things. So you would think that I should be right in that Venn intersection, but no, no, that looked awful. Also. Why does why does Giles's refrigerator look like something you would find in like the worst Fallout vault? <laughs> like you just open it and there's just like dozens of preserved pie in there, and you're like, I feel like something tragic has happened here. I mean, again, he only has the pie because he has a crush on the pie guy. Yeah, but you throw, throw away out. the pie. <laughs> like, you go there, you flirt with the pie dude, you go like, oh, I'll take this home for later, and then you chuck it in the bin. What is wrong with you, Giles? Why do you have, like, 24 pieces of pie sitting in your refrigerator? You are never going to eat that. <laughs> and they all look the same, so whatever is in this pie, it doesn't decompose. Yeah. Yeah, it is not. It is not decomposing. It is. It is the perfectly preserved pie from Fallout. That is what this is. I wonder if that was Guillermo's shout out to Fallout, and if it was, bravo! I may have been the only person in the world to have caught that reference. <laughs> Nuka pie. <laughs> <laughs> Add that to the list of far more interesting questions I want to ask Guillermo del Toro if anybody knows mm -hmm. him. <laughs> okay, uh, so I want to circle back to something real quick. Right. The jello. It mm. kind of ties in with the pie a little bit. But I actually, in uh, my history class in college, I did a whole paper on how Jello was viewed at the time because of this movie. We had to basically find a, a movie that wasn't like a historical bio, a biopic or something like that and find a historical point in it. The movie had to be historical too, but at least set in a different period. And we had to write a paper on some little part of it and how that ties into history. And the way Jello was marketed in the depression, it was like the luxury food, the food that the luxury that everyone could afford because it was kind of easy to make. They were just starting to like make it in the packages. And at the same time, it had to throw back to when Jello was a pain in the ass to make because you had to like boil animal hooves for hours and hours and hours. And in this, after the depression, stopped there was kind of a stigma about it like it was the poor person's food because now the poor people could afford it they ate it during the depression and it wasn't considered a luxury anymore so it was like really marketed as the family food at the time and especially the green lime jello 
because like lime with the whole citrus thing was kind of a novelty and making it that lime lime color was considered kind of a novelty too because back at the time for the longest time green food had been toxic and this was like the first one that hadn't been so there was like this push of the green lime jello in the ad would have been considered the most wholesome family possible thing of the 60s which is kind of the emphasis of Giles's character because at the time as a gay man he would have been considered the enemy of the family the color green plays a large part in this movie from the jello to the key lime pie to the Cadillac, to the fish man himself. Oh, yeah. And well, it's... It, I, I'm just going to say, green is kind of the the color of the ocean and a lot of things in the, the ocean. Um, so it, it does... It does show up a lot in the the film in that sense um but notice that the car is not green it's teal Teal, yeah you know and he gets very mad when when you're calling it green yeah Um, the car the salesman he's like oh it's not green it's teal like giving him out i think it's kind of a green is the color of life in this well, and the and the the Jello people say that that green is the color of the future. The car guy disagrees that teal is the color of the future. But then, what happens to the teal? The car gets smashed. The guy that owns the car gets dead. But what happens to the the green things? They they keep going. You know. Mm-hmm. Except for that damn pie. I mean, I guess it keeps going, but... Well, that, that pie not a healthy is perpetual. That, that pie <laughs> helps live everything. Um, what kind of I was circling about this is I really got the vibe that the reason Giles didn't get work as much anymore was because he'd been outed. Maybe it's just the madman in me, and I'm circling back to what happened with Sal. But the vibe I got was that other guy who uh, was trying to sort of get him work had outed him or somehow done something to him. So he's not working directly with him anymore, but the guy feels bad about it. So he's kind of trying to get him low-key work, but not trying super hard. That was my reading anyway. I don't know. Yeah, maybe you're at home and out of the office, and that's why you shouldn't have come to the office, because I'm trying to slip your work under the radar so they don't know it's you, Mm -hmm. so that maybe I can still get you a paycheck if I, you know, submit your work under a pseudonym. I I can buy that as a a thing, yeah. Um. I got some vibe of there, like when Giles said, "Well, who didn't he essentially say who you're the one who let me go or fired me or something along those lines?" Like, 
you're the reason why I'm not in the office anymore? Yeah, I, th- I think I think there was kind of something like that in passing, but the the thing about it is that I I I get that kind of sense as well. The the thing is that it it seems to me like you you get the sense from from Giles that when he's talking to the fishman and he's doing that thing of you know have you always been alone i i don't know how i ended up alone it it wasn't my intent but that you you really get the sense that he recently had a better life and something happened not too long before the start of the film and he's kind of ended up in this place mm-hmm. The phrase it, he uses to uh, to uh, later on is, "I was either born too early or too late to have the life I want." Yeah, and I think a lot of outcasts feel that way. That that kind of displaced in time feeling. Mm-hmm. That somewhere there there was a society. Or will be a society that was accepting to me. But I just ended up being unlucky enough to be born in this one. And that, I think, is the interesting fairy tale with Eliza and the Fishman. Because in all of the the Beauty and the Beast fairy tales, no matter kind of what form that takes, there is always the sense of there are two lovers and they are somehow different and they have to learn to overcome their differences And maybe one or both of them changes either emotionally or physically. And then they can have their love. Mm. And in this one, the lovers are the only things that never change in this film. They are the only characters that do not have an arc. Eliza does not have an arc in this film. The Fishman does not have an arc in this film. They meet, they fall in love, and they end the movie as the exact same characters they start the movie. Except now they are in love. They never have a fight. They never have any sort of disagreement other than, please don't eat my neighbor's cat. (laughs) And that is it. 
I, I mean, as far as those two characters, they are steady and constant. I would say there's the tiniest bit of change of fish, the fisherman where he has to learn that not all humans are terrible. It's a very, very tiny change, but it is there. Well, yeah, when he first meets her, he is very worried that she will also harm him. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I, I will grant you that. There is that moment of, will she also be an enemy? Um, but that passes very quickly once once he learns that like she will she is not coming at me with aggression. Um, but that's that's reasonable. I, I'll give him that. <laughs> um, every human you have met in this new environment has been absolutely awful to you and hit you with a cattle prod. It's it's fine. Um, but. What has to change is literally everything else in this environment. You know, Zelda has to change. Giles has to change. Uh, Hofstetter has to change a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, society in general. I mean, every other thing in this film has to change somewhat to accommodate these two characters. The only thing that doesn't have to change in this Beauty and the Beast story are Beauty and the Beast. Which I find a fascinating idea. They are the only thing that's right in this world. Everything else is slightly off kilter. Which I think is fascinating in a, in a movie where you have a seemingly human woman who fucks a fish. <laughs> like that's the one thing that's okay in this film. Everything else mm-hmm. is wrong. <laughs> I think it really describes uh, Del Toro's ultimate ethos of more than anything else. The base of all his movies, on some level, is loving the monster, loving the monsters within you, loving, like, like you say for Bowie Day, loving the alien, the parts of us that are strange, and that. It's not wrong to have those parts and to keep those parts. They don't need to change. Well, I mean, that is that is the reason why I love Del Toro movies and Del Toro himself so much mm-hmm. is that, you know, I talk about that there's a lot that I find similar between, you know, he and I. And that is one of those major things is that's one of my ethos as well. You know, there's a reason why I like the the villains. You know, it's like you can you can talk about like, well, I I disagree with the actions, but I want to understand the the reasonings. Mm-hmm. You know, and I am always about loving. The monster because i i really dislike when you're just like well you know that's our two-dimensional mustache twirling you know whatever because even in this one you know what did we start the conversation off with let's talk about what made strickland the way he is even in the movie where you have maybe one of the most two-dimensional mustache twirling villains del toro has ever given us he's not 
he's a guy that was probably beaten down by this system. And even him, he's got an even bigger villain, which is the general that just walks in and goes, count the stars on my shoulder. That means I can do whatever the hell I want. Like, you know, I see a fish man, I can kill it. I see a country, I can bomb it. I'm the big swinging dick general. Like, well, screw you, dude. I've never met a guy I wanted to punch in the face more. I don't care <laughs> if you're a five-star general. You seem like a douche. Nobody should have that much power. Go away. Who made you god of the military? Also, why is there a military? Go away. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's... I, I don't care. <laughs> Um, him and the the handler too they both have that attitude of yes you think that this thing is worth more but it's obviously worth more but i'm not going to even entertain that idea i'm just going to steamroll over it because i've decided i'm the decider yeah yeah it's and there's nothing you want to kick in the balls more than the guy who goes, I'm the decider in there. I mean, it's just like, no, it's, I mean, maybe it's just my particular neurotype. But if you wander into the room and be like, I'm the boss, do what I say. I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm just, I'm not about that. That's, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to, to not do that just to spite you. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's super fascinating, like you said, how even Strickland, the, the mustache twirling awful, like, is flawed and he's deeply human. He's not. For all his, oh yes, this is a stereotype, there's a broken human edge to him that we see there. And I don't know how much of it is Del Toro, how much of it is Michael Shannon, but Michael Shannon excels at that type. And it's it's beautiful in its own way because of how broken he is. And if he gets, if the creature gets, you know, the split second arc of, uh, is this human going to hurt me? And then there's that quick change. I think at the end he gets his very quick change too. When he realizes, oh, I was wrong about everything. And the dies. Yeah, I do like that he got that moment of realizing that he was wrong. I mean, it is a brief second right before, you know, he gets his throat cut. But I absolutely, one of the things that annoys me in real life is the fact that the real villains in life just get to walk around thinking they're the heroes. You know, there's yeah. th- there's that great line of, you know, every villain thinks they're the hero of the story. Um, which is great from a writing perspective and an acting perspective, but it's also true in real life that truly horrible people really do think that they're the good guy. Um, Because they have the power of the Holy One and the goodness and, well, you're the other blah, 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 blah. You know, we've kind of been through that, yeah. But I 
I do like that in that in that brief moment, you know she will die realizing that he's the bad guy here. Mm-hmm. And I do like that that is probably the the worst of it. Like is there something beyond? I don't know. But at, at that moment, as he's laying there bleeding out, he will realize that, like, oh, crap, I tortured a god. <laughs> like, like, that will be his final thought. Like, I I was the bad guy in this story. Just echoing his head, I've made a huge mistake just over and over again. Like, I deserve I- this. I, mm-hmm. I deserve this. This is I. I am having the day I deserve. Like mm-hmm. this. This is I, I'm. I'm getting. I'm getting the day I deserve. Yeah. Um. Which I. I guess is the closest thing to to justice that that you could probably hope for. But I don't know. Um. I. I just. Just a, a brief a brief note on Zelda. Yeah. The goat. Can we just Zelda is awesome. Yes. I mean Octavia Spencer is great and everything, but Zelda is such a good character. You you feel for her every moment she's on screen. She is in way over her head and she handles it wonderfully. And I am don't you just hate her husband? What a useless he, sack of shit. Yeah, I mean, she talks she talks shit about her husband throughout the entire movie and how he's just lazy, he doesn't do anything. And we finally see that towards the end of the movie. And she's right. Like, at first you're like, woman, really? Like, come on, he's got to have some good points. Nope, no redeeming quality in this man. He like, she's cooking. She's cooking, and then he's sitting there watching TV, and he tells her to get the door when he's clearly the closest to the door. There's a part of me that does feel like he's not 100% terrible for telling Strickland about the creature. From, like, a viewer point of view, from Zelda's point of view, from everyone's I 100% understand why he's hated for it. I will not begrudge anyone for hating him for it. But at the same time, he is a black man. They were a black couple in the 1960s. And this guy is just barged into their house, waving a cattle prod around, putting his rotting fingers everywhere. And if he kills him, nothing would happen to him. There's literally nothing stopping this guy from just deciding, fuck it, I'm just going to beat the shit out of these people to pose that again. I don't blame him for saying I need to get this man out of my house immediately by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. Everything else, total piece of shit. I 100% agree with him. Fuck him. I hope he divorces Zelda, but I do understand that one point of view. Oh, yeah. No, I am totally with you on that. That is the only point in the movie where I'm like, I 100% understand what he did in that moment. Because you absolutely understand the motivation of. I am a, I am a black man and this crazy ass white man who I kn- I know that my wife works at a top secret government facility that I am not allowed to know anything about. And I know that I have overheard her talking on the phone about some crazy ass illegal shit she just got up to that may or may not be considered treason. Mm-hmm. And it is the middle of the night and a crazy ass white man 
just stomped his ass in here with a cattle prod, ripped off two of his fingers, and threatened to rip my house down to the ground, burying me and my wife in there. I mean, I, I, I 1000% understand him being like, yeah, the fish man's over at the mute girl's place. I am, I am not faulting him for that. Not at all. Everything else we hear about him in the movie, he is a complete waste of space. Please divorce him, girl. You have a job. Hopefully you can get an apartment with some friends or something. I realize that it is hard for a black woman in the 60s to survive on her own. There might be kids in the picture. I get it, but please try to, you know, find something move in with your sister or whatever and hopefully you get to keep that government job yeah. Yeah. I I loved her I was very worried that she was going to be the black best friend and just do nothing but say are you alright in various tones of voices um, and she was not at least to the best of my knowledge uh, she was a fully realized character who, like you said, had an arc, who had motivations beyond Eliza, and who Octavia Spencer played absolutely beautifully. She's amazing. She's one of my favorite actresses. I just, I think before we wrap up, we just gotta have a, 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 a very short Doug Jones love fest, because we have talked about <laughs> Doug Jones on the show before. But can we talk about Doug Jones getting to be the romantic lead in a movie? Yes. He just loves playing fish people, doesn't he? I mean, I think Guillermo del Toro loves having Doug, Doug Jones play fish people. Yes. Well, this... it was like walks so that the asset could fuck and yeah. payment. Yeah. I mean, Abe Sapien did get a sort of a bit of a crush in that second movie. Yeah. But, I don't think it's but he didn't fuck in that second movie. Yeah. I mean yes. we didn't we didn't really have I mean they they could have gone a lot farther with it, but that would have been some a real feat of you know, prosthetics, I guess. <laughs> Them describing how they had sex is actually more interesting than if they had shown it. That yes. that was that was a very interesting way to handle that, yeah. <laughs> um the I love this was I think they said I think they they said that this movie was the eighth movie that he had done with Del Toro? By the, by the time they did it? Hmm. Um, but yeah, the first one he did was Mimic. And he only got mimic by kind of accident 
because he just they had another tall skinny suit wearing actor and that actor like he got sick or something on a day they needed to do a couple of big shots and somebody was like hey i think doug jones is nearby and they called him up and they were like literally what are you doing tonight in like three hours (laughs) And he was like, um, nothing if you've got a paycheck for me. And so they were like, yeah, we got a paycheck. He come, come down to the, to this, you know, spot. And so he did that. And then they were like, yeah, the other guy's still sick. So can you come back tomorrow? And he did. And apparently he, I th- I think I think he said that they were like at lunch or something mm-hmm. and he was just still sitting around in the mimic suit and Del Toro just came up and sat next to him and started talking to him at lunch and he was like so do you do a lot of like wearing suits in creature films and he was like yeah actually cuz he had done a lot of them by that point and uh, Del Toro was like, "Oh, who have you worked with?" And by that point, Doug Jones had had a pretty good career, and so he had worked with a lot of the big makeup people. And he started naming them. And Del Toro was like, "Oh man, I love them!" And all oh, because Del Toro is just a fanboy. <laughs> and uh, he was just really impressed by everybody Doug Jones had worked with, and he was like do you have a business card? And Doug Jones was like, yeah, I have a business card. He's like, give me your business card. And so he did. And like five years later, uh, they, they made a maquette for Abe Sapien mm-hmm. when they were doing Hellboy and somebody in the room went, because like everybody in the room had worked with Doug Jones at that point, And somebody in the room went, you know, this sculpt really looks like Doug Jones. And everybody went, yeah, it does look like Doug Jones. And Del Toro went, Doug Jones, why do I know that name? And pulled out his wallet and pulled out Doug Jones' business card that he had been carrying (laughs) around in his wallet for five years and went, that's why I know that guy. And they called him up and was like, do you want to be an boy? Awesome. <laughs> so uh so yeah, after that that was just he was the go-to guy for for that. But um now like whenever Del Toro needs needs a guy, it's Doug Jones. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I've 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 loved Doug Jones like since the Mac Tonight days. <laughs> Don't come at me with your Doug Jones, man. Uh but the um yeah this one they 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 wanted him to be they specifically del toro wanted them to sculpt the fish the fish man to be fuckable like he walked in the room and he was like i want you to make me a fish man but i want it to be the creature from the black lagoon but fuckable one of the things I read about this that I, again, love, 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 love Del Toro for is he said he specifically wanted this movie to be the woman gets to fuck and live. 
he said the exact same thing about Crimson Peak. He's yeah. like, you, you, you want to. He's like, I want it to be a gothic horror, but I want the heroine to fuck and survive. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, like, bless that man for that. Like, yes, I'm, I'm so sick of woman falls in love and dies. <clears throat> MCU. Yes. And yeah. I... <laughs> the, uh... I... I... I love that, and I love the fact that he he wanted in the performance what Doug Jones was told, I mean, speaking of Marvel, was he brought Doug Jones in and Doug Jones was like, well, how do you want this thing to move and react and are we going totally animal? Are we going totally human? Like, what do you want? And he was like, it should be a little bit animal, but mostly I want it to be Silver Surfer if he was a matador. Hmm. Fascinating. And so it's kind of It's kind of a superhero powerful stance, but if you've ever watched Matadors move in a bullring, they have a very particular way of holding their arms and moving their hips. And if you watch the way the creature move in in the movie... Doug Jones holds his arms in that same kind of pose in his very powerful godlike moments. And he moves his hips in that same kind of stance. It's a very grounded um, center of gravity that all moves around the hips. And so it's a very kind of I almost want to say kind of like a a salsa dance kind of move where it's very focused on the movement of the hips which also kind of makes it very fuckable because <laughs> it's a very sexy kind of movement um, because it's all very kind of weirdly pelvic you know um, and so it's it's very fascinating in the way that he kind of holds his arms back like a like a matador um and you can almost imagine when you look at it if you go back and look at it you can almost imagine him like holding a cape in one hand or or whatever and circling a bull um in that that same kind of pose but it's it's fascinating and he says he uses he uses Doug Jones over and over again because Doug Jones is actually an actor. He's not just like a stunt guy that can put on a suit. He knows emotion and he, you know, um which I mean, you know, if you've seen his work on like Discovery or or something now. Um it's it's a lot more clear to people who just know him as that guy in the suit or whatever. Um, but he he says that that's why he he likes using Doug Jones is because he he wants somebody who knows how to act 
through all those layers of of makeup. And that's very hard to do. Yeah, there's really not a lot of people who can do it. It's such a more particular skill because a lot of actors, you put prosthetics on them and they lose that that ability. Because Um, most, most of their acting is through facial expression. You also have to have the the body language as well and Doug Jones is really good at body language. Yeah, it's it's one of the reasons why he uses Ron Perlman as well cuz Ron Perlman used to be just you know the the A game of that as well um because you know Beauty and the Beast back in the day um and he I mean he still got skills cuz Hellboy and stuff but um he he knows how to do it as well. It's one of the reasons why I love Jeffrey Combs because he's he's one of the the greatest at it. Um, but a a lot of actors you put them in in that much prosthetic and they just kind of forget all their training. Um, it's why so so many studios I think are going to that mocap stuff is you kind of put dots on their faces and go like, well, we'll just CGI stuff onto your face later. Um, so maybe you'll stop forgetting how to act when we put an appliance on you. Um, so I, I have nothing but the utmost respect for people who kind of continue to be able to act through those layers. Cause it, it is a very specific skill and it's not something everybody can do. Um, and I've always loved and gravitated towards actors who can do it, which is why I take particular note of the people who can. And it's why Doug Jones caught my eye so early, uh, honestly. That and I just watch an obscene amount of you know horror films and creature features that have people like Doug Jones. It's almost a horror movie thing, I've noticed more. Like, actors who are able to bring that kind of theatricality to the the big screen or the small screen where you get up really close and not have it look weird. It's it's something Jeffrey Combs does. It's something that uh, Vincent Price could do. It's something that um, Ron Perlman did. And Doug Jones can. It's remembering a type of theatrical acting that I don't think you really see much in mainstream actors anymore. Like, you still get some. You get, like, the ones who come from the British theater tradition, like Ian McKellen and uh, David Tennant and those types. They they have that physicality and they're able to emote big while not being over the top. But it's something that's I think required more in a horror movie and something that I think Del Toro especially looks for because all of his movies, if nothing else, are horror adjacent. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Doug has a a background in mime and, you know, contortion and stuff like that. But the... The thing is, is that I just don't think a lot of actors today, I mean, maybe some of the ones who go through the 
some of the major schools over in the UK. Um, but not a lot of American actors, I find, really have kind of the intense body work. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do tend to do more kind of subtle stuff with face and voice, which is an outgrowth of how good technology has gotten with cameras and microphones and everything. But it does hurt you when you're back on a stage or when you have to do something underneath prosthetics. Um, And it also does hurt you if you need something that requires a little less vocalization, a little more physicality. And I think it's why we're seeing things like, uh, you know, some of the weirdo toxic method stuff, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, oh, I don't know how to get into this character. Let me send rodents to my co-stars or whatever um is because you're forgetting some of the more kind of basic tricks that actors used to rely on and now you're just like "Mm, let me be a douchebag for a while and see if that'll help which it doesn't stop doing that um but i think that that's why i love people who remember those kind of more traditional theatrical methods Um, because we get amazing performances like that but of course the problem is then you get people like Doug Jones who is the star of the Oscar winner for best picture and he walks down the red carpet and people are like yay it's the entire cast and the weird skinny dude who we won't talk to mm-hmm. on the red carpet which you know is like I hated watching the Oscars that year because I was like yay Doug Jones is there and the camera won't show him because nobody knows who he is you know this is why um, award shows put a big emphasis on showing an actor's face. We had talked about this before with, like, you know, The Mandalorian and stuff like that, where, you know, actors will not get the recognition because their faces were never shown. Yeah, you have no feelings on The Mandalorian, do you, Tasha? <laughs> <laughs> They're much more positive than you would think. But uh, I, I was thinking about Anthony Circus and when Gollum was in the Two Towers and people were like, why is he not getting Oscar buzz? This is amazing. Oh, wait, because it's all mocap. And does this count as an animated performance? It technically doesn't. He did all that. It was all his physicality. They, they mapped it over and overlaid it, but it doesn't count. And kind of the same thing with Doug Jones. It's obviously all his performance. This would not be anybody else. No one else could have done this. And it's kind of 
about, you know, the Oscars is about who can do the saddest, crumply, cryy face up close and show their nice beneath the most and not about, you know, this kind of acting. If there were, if it were about real acting, Doug Jones would be nominated all the time. Anthony Serkis would be nominated all the time because what they're doing is just incredible real acting in a way that a lot of other actors never can and never will. And it, it, it's like you said, they don't, they look like the weird skinny guy out on the red carpet. And they're lucky if they get in the cast photo. Yeah, I, my, my good friend, Sydney, who has been on the show before, she and I are the, like, co-chairs of the, oh my god, give Andy Circus a freaking Oscar already club. <laughs> we have been beating that drum for years now. Uh-huh. Um so I'm I'm totally with you on that. And I I also would like to to join the give Doug Jones a freaking Oscar already you dumpties that yeah. Um so it's yeah, I mean I've talked before on the show about how I very much dislike awards shows being the let's stand in a field and cry <laughs> um, form of, of acting because I I'm not sure that that's really particularly the the best uh, use of of that um, I, I don't really think that's that's where we we stretch somebody's uh, real real talent, um, but it is what they they seem to go for. Um, but yeah, I was I was very shocked that this won the Oscar that year. Um, I I mean it. It ended up getting 13 nominations that year, and it ended up winning four, um, including Best Director and Best Picture. Um, it's one of the very few like genre pieces that I've ever won. Like I know that uh, Lord of the Rings was the, really the first fantasy fantasy movie. This uh, was only the second fantasy film to win. Return of the King was the first. Wow. We haven't had a technical horror horror movie, like a straight up supernatural horror movie ever really win. We've had Silence of the Lambs, which I call a horror movie, but people can effectively make the case that it's a thriller, which I think is kind of a cop out, but you know, you can make that case. So, then I don't think we've ever really had a sci-fi movie win, have we? The thing is, though, is that it is very much a thing of how studios campaign and you know, what what the 
the voters feel like on the particular year. Uh, we've talked before about the the things that survive and become beloved versus the things that win the awards not always being the same. Sometimes they are. I mean, you know, Lord of the Rings is t continues to be beloved uh, for good reason, I, I feel. Um, I think that this film keeps picking up uh, it keeps picking up fans. I, I think it was one that a lot of people slept on, but people will, you know, kind of continue to find and love. Um, but I I do think that it's one of those that it's a movie for the people who need to find the movie, if that makes sense. It will it will speak to the movie it needs to speak to. I think it's one of those ones that's going to be definitely rediscovered down the lines and people are going to be like, oh my gosh, how do people, why did nobody tell me about this? Um, like Crimson Peak is getting that moment now, I've noticed. And uh, Crimson Peak, incidentally, is probably my second favorite of his. Uh, only slightly behind Pan's Labyrinth. They're like neck and neck, depending on my, my feels. But I, I can see this one becoming like Crimson Peak, where they're like, how was this not noticed? How Where's this movie been all my life? And I think that. Um, that's kind of a better legacy than winning the Oscar for it. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad he got the Oscar because, you know, I, I mean, go go get your statue, you wonderful little man. But the uh, that's like that's now <laughs> to be more so. Yeah, I mean, you know. Like, those things kind of give you clout with the money people and fine um it's i don't particularly it's not going to give you much clout with me you know it's like i, I liked him before i'm gonna continue to like him but uh money people please give him money to make films i, I guess uh, but this, it's just such a beautiful movie. If there's one thing you can say about Del Toro, it's like, it's that he knows how to make a pretty, pretty picture. <laughs> and, and I mean that in the sense of like, you could pause any frame of this and put it on my wall. This is a gorgeous film in the sense of just artwork and it's not a style over substance movie either i i mean i i'm of the opinion mostly that style is substance you can put a pretty movie on there and give it the shallowest story and i'll still be drooling for more but everything does have purpose here everything has a layer and he's one of the directors that does that sort of thing incredibly yeah. well and i hope he just keeps doing it 
Yeah, I mean, I say the same thing about Crimson Peak, too. That's just a beautiful film in the sense of, you know, pause any frame of that, and it's it's just an absolute artwork. But this this movie, just the way the colors are used and the way it's framed and set design and the, the costuming and, the, you know, it's everything is so beautifully thought out and it works so perfectly on the screen. It just it looks so good and it serves the story so well, you know, immediately who all the characters are just visually. Um, but it's it's such a a beautiful film in all senses of the word um and the sound too the the music that they've chosen all the old hollywood songs and then the score and uh the the sound design and the way that the the sounds from the the fishman the the little gurgles and the chattering you know the chirping sounds he makes and stuff um so yeah every everything is just it works so well together i love it so do we do we want to get to the question yeah so uh this brings us to the question does the shape of water have the magic uh tasha since you're our guest uh go first heck yeah it, it has the magic um and maybe not quite a Disney magic, but it is definitely magic. Magical, magical movie. It's got the fish god magic. <laughs> it has the fish god magic. Uh, Kiki? Uh, yeah, this this is very high up on my list on the uh, Del Toro uh, list of films. Uh, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, again, I, I don't know about the Disney magic, but it's got the uh, bioluminescent fish god magic, definitely. I'm going to agree. Uh, I feel bad that I slept on this movie. Again, I had my reasons, but watching it, it takes a bit to get going, but once it it gets going, it's very sweet, the romance between um, our two leads, and yeah, it's, it's I would recommend it to anyone who, who who likes who will like it. It's a nice reinterpretation or reimagining of uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon in a in a way that I don't think anyone except Del Toro would have thought of. So Tash, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, not really. I've got my uh, Facebook that I really take care of the most. It's Natasha Cox on Facebook. Um, if you see what looks like someone in a Mandalorian costume, probably me. Uh, and that's about it for now. Uh, thank you guys very, very much for having me. This was a blast. All right, and you're welcome back on the show anytime. I, I will. I will. I will say that. Uh, Tasha has uh, possibly the coolest uh, Mandalorian uh, cosplay that I have ever seen. Her her Mandalorian character is one of the coolest ever. Uh, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Thank you so much. That really means fun. Tasha, as a first-time guest, you are allowed a request. 
And we will watch whatever it is you request in the next episode. Tasha, do you have a request for us? I request DuckTales 2017, the reboot. Um, if you want a good overview of it, I would say the first couple of episodes, the pilot, uh, woohoo, and uh, the next episode are probably the best intros to the show. And if you feel like kicking a few more on there, I I really recommend uh, Death Knight Returns and Let's Get Dangerous. Three of those are available on YouTube for, if, for free. If you don't have Disney Plus viewers or listeners, just saying. Um, but I think that y'all will like that a lot. All right, so come back next week as we were diving into DuckTales 2017. And we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. If you want to help the fight for human rights in the U.S., the American Civil Liberties Union works to protect constitutional rights for all Americans. Their website is aclu.org. If you need reproductive services in the U.S. or wish to donate to those who do, go to abortionfunds.org for more info. The battle isn't over until the last person surrenders. The fight continues. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.